This episode of the What's Real podcast is dedicated to the lives of Clarence Williams III and Jim Fossil. It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's real? What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 74 of the What's Real podcast, a.k.a. the Construction Zone. At least where I am today. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my uh, cohort, my co-conspirator, my uh, co... Uh, I don't know. It, it's the motherfucking Jay. What's up, the Jay? And the his for shiz. Hey, yeah, the blood is flowing appropriately this week. Big episode 74 of the What's Real podcast. You know how we love those kind of even numbers and... I don't know. I think it's just kind of one of those weird human things that this is like the countdown, even though this is going to be an epic episode like always, but the countdown to the even 75th episode next week of the What's Real podcast, 75 episodes. But let's focus on what's at hand. Hey, and the Jays is pumped as ever. You're talking about construction sites. I'm looking like Hulk Hogan in the construction worker hat back in the day with the pythons this week. Hey, you know, nice and pumped up for the big episode 74 of What's Real. We have an awesome show this week. Uh, of course, we are going to go down to the drive-in with our good friend Joe Bob Briggs for one of the strangest episodes of The Last Drive-In uh, that they've done to date uh, with two movies, two shot-on-video horror flicks from the 80s, uh, Sledgehammer from 1983 and Things from 1989. Uh, that's going to be fun. Uh, and a lot of wrestling, as usual, we are going to take a look at the A&E biography on none other than Brett the Hitman Hart in their season finale. And also, we are going to go to potentially the darkest side of the ring that we've seen up to date. Uh, this is about Grizzly Smith, a.k.a. Jake the Snake Roberts and his family. Uh, that is going to be who. not fun. Uh, and of course, we have plenty of other stuff. And of course... Uh, goofs as usual so let's get into it the j uh last night real quick uh was a quote unquote boxing match or not last night the night before i should say Sunday. It was a quote unquote boxing match uh logan paul versus floyd mayweather and uh yeah Everybody was making a big deal about Logan Paul lasting eight rounds like this shit was a real fight, uh, assuming that, you know, like Mayweather wasn't taking it too seriously <laughs> from what I've seen. Uh, I know some people, too, were trying to say that, like, he knocked out Logan Paul at one point and was, like, holding them up. I don't buy that. But, like, yeah, this was exactly what I kind of expected to be perfect. That's what I was just going to say. We called it. We know the game. Hey, you know, we're 41. We've been around the block. We know what's going on here. The Guardian summed it up the best. The headline was Logan Paul versus Floyd Mayweather ends in booze as each fighter makes millions. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So, like, that's literally the point of this. Like, they did an exhibition to make shitloads of money. Now, I saw... Um, uh, Damn it. The name is like sort of escaping me. Uh, dude's a champ in UFC. Oh, I was uh, I was going to bring that up as well. Francis Nagano. Nagano. Yeah. Right. He was like, yeah. what are we doing wrong in, in UFC? He, well, it's not what they're doing wrong. It's what the UFC is doing. Wrong. Exactly. Um, and Dana White. But yeah, that's 
you know, dude, I'm shocked right now uh, that there hasn't been some big money investor, uh, maybe a boxing person already or something like that to invest money in MMA stuff uh, of a major, you know, deal. Like, I'm just really surprised. But like, here's the thing. People are conditioned differently uh, with MMA up to this point. It's more about a solid card and a, and a long-awaited main event in MMA. In boxing, it's always a one-match show, pretty much. Like, everything else on the undercard is basically just throwaway nonsense that most people don't care about. Um, not to begrudge any of the fighters, but, you know, it's just a, this is just a different side of boxing now, which is weird. It's like freak show boxing, but it's all exhibitions. And for some reason, there's a ton of money in it. I mean, that's that's the thing that, you know, because I get Francis Nagano's point, but it's almost like, and as I always disclaimer, hey, you know, it's like the Jay's weird head kind of thing, but it's almost like me as an independent filmmaker bitching about how we created our own original feature film, low budget with little marketing or not, about some other huge franchise getting like a million sequels. If If people aren't paying to see it, they're not going to make the sequels. You know what I mean? And and that's kind yeah. of the thing. It's like, I get what Francis is saying, but the bottom line is people are paying to watch this stuff. We, we previewed it last week. We had said it's kind of that train wreck kind of effect thing that you watch. You want to watch the train wreck human nature and they make millions of dollars because millions of people are watching it. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. It, it's, it's just like the kind of correlates with the Nike talk we do. Like if you don't buy the Nikes, you're not going to have the hype, but Good luck with that because you're going against the world here when it comes to all this. Well, yeah. I mean, we've said the same thing just to use the sneaker thing. Like no one cares for the most part that like new balances are way better constructed and you get way better uh, materials on them than you do with Jordans, for example. Like, and I'm talking higher level new balance. Right. No one cares about that. They, They will pay more money for the ones that are made worse with worse materials just because of the hype. It is what it is. Like everybody's guilty of it. It's just a part of the culture, Uh, but it's weird. You know, I'll fully admit that too, but like a lot of people like look at you goofy. Like, what do you, what's the problem? I'm like, it's it's fucking weird is what it is. Use this for an example. Hey, did you buy the fight? No. Did I buy the fight? No. So we did our part, but guess what? They still made millions of dollars and it was still a huge pay-per-view success. Yeah, somebody bought it. You know what I mean? Like, dude, this is one thing on this show that we are not shy about. Like, we tell you where we spend our money right, <laughs> yeah. to things that we like. So uh, it just kind of is what it is, but it's been a massive story the last couple of days. And obviously we we're going to bring it up here on the show. So now, uh, now it's the countdown to the one we brought up with this last week in the preview where his brother Jake Paul is fighting UFC fighter Tyrone Woodley in August. So it's a countdown to that, I guess. And I don't know why, but I take that one more seriously for some reason, I guess, because Woodley's not a level of fighter like a Mayweather. And I actually think that Jake Paul's probably a better boxer than his brother. But exactly. He's coming off a knockout, a goofy knockout, albeit, but nonetheless, he's coming off you know, a knockout. So makes it more interesting, yeah, I would say. Yeah, it's it's not going to stop. So uh, and also this is pretty wild. But like, dude, we've seen some WWE releases in the last week since we've done the show. 
And dude, this company is do- like, okay. So we've talked about this on the show recently. Do you see Vince setting up for a sale or are you kind of like, cause I'm from the thing where I like, I just don't believe it when I see it. Yeah. Those, those are the rumors that are swirling of course with the interwebs and different parts of pro wrestling, social media. However, I'm with you. Uh, we talked off air about it. I, I feel like I, I said to you, you know, we are lifelong fans and we're pretty good with having our finger on the pulse of most things. But nonetheless, we're not in the WWE. So I go by references that have even more insight than you and I. And guys like Triple H himself and Stone Cold has always said it, that they believe Vince McMahon's going to quote unquote die in the chair. So yeah. that's kind of my line of thinking too. And I feel like he's not going to sell. He's not going anywhere until he is physically health-wise incapable of running the World Wrestling Entertainment Company. Well, I mean, the only reason that I would think that he might sell is that they've kind of figured out maybe after the pandemic, the live part of the wrestling business is dead. Like, there's no room for house shows and stuff anymore. Um which I don't know if that's the case or not. Um, I was going to say, look, they're jumping on tour again. They will. Yeah. But it's the first time after what? 13, 14 months. Yeah. Um, and it's not a permanent thing like that. I know of yet. Uh, there's probably states they still can't go to and states that they probably wouldn't do well if they went to anyways at this point. Um, I, I don't know, but a lot of people are talking about it. And of course, we're talking about the releases that happened in the last week. People like Braun Strowman, Alistair Black, uh, Buddy Murphy, Lana, Ruby Riot, and Santana Garrett. Um, because these were bigger names. Like, there's not a lot of fluff in here, I guess. Santana Garrett was probably the closest to that. Um, she'll probably go back to doing kind of the same stuff that she was before, I would assume. Ruby Riot will pick up work. I don't think that's going to be a problem. I think AEW would be the perfect place for her uh, just to have another established person that can actually work because I think their women's rosters, it falls off a fucking cliff really quickly. Um, I think we know where Lana's probably going to end up, which I don't have a problem with that. Murphy could probably work in a ton of places. Uh, Alistair Black could probably find work uh, in a lot of places. But the thing I wanted to ask you, the Jay, as far as Braun Strowman goes, do you think he's done? Or do you think this is the kind of thing we're probably just going to see him back at some point or what? Do you think he actually goes somewhere else? I'm thinking he's going somewhere else. They talked about online a few days ago. Uh, it got some some press that I saw within my social media and you know specifically wrestling Twitter where I get most of my my news and find articles and all that that he kind of posted a cryptic message with the song lyrics from the song Freebird. I don't know if you saw that, yeah, but did, you know yeah. he's kind of saying you know I'm a free man now. So I mean that's of course just in 2021 pro wrestling the biggest question from the big as they dubbed it the spring cleaning of WWE which typically is the time of year where Vince McMahon and company seem to make uh, their cuts is of course the question of who goes to AEW, which is defined as the second biggest company. 
And as yeah. you alluded to, there's a lot of places to go in 2021 wrestling. So of course, that's the the third question is if not AEW, where do the chips fall with with people that are going to remain as pro wrestlers in the industry and, and where do they go? Because now with MLW getting a TV deal with Vice, uh, that's that's even another spot besides your usual suspects of of impact and Ring of Honor and even the NWA. So, you know, and then there's always Japan, Mexico. I mean, there's a lot of places to work for professional wrestlers right now, which is a good thing. You know, it's like, you know, you feel bad for people getting fired, but, you know, cream rises to the top and hopefully anybody talented is going to find a spot somewhere else. Dude, did you see the thing? Because I seen this pop up online a couple days or a couple times yesterday. Uh, Carl Anderson, I don't know if this was on his like social media or if he was doing an interview or something like that. But uh, he was talking about like when everybody gets released from there, uh, he's like, you know, he's like, it kind of pisses me off to see all these thank you tweets and Instagram posts and everything. He's like, it hasn't even been 24 hours since you got released and you're already thanking the people that fucking just fired you. He's like, I get it and be gracious and all that, but it's like, maybe wait a couple days, like let the shit process a little bit, like go home and get your fucking life in order a little bit, because I know you've been living on the road fucking 300 days a year. So like go home and like, you know, fucking get your shit together. Uh, Maybe even get a fucking place to stay for some of these people, because who knows you know, what their lives are like, or go spend time with their fucking family. Quit worrying about running on social media and be like, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity. Like you did just fucking fire me. I'm allowed to be like a little perturbed by it for a couple days. That's why I I liked uh, Lana's reaction the best. She kind of finally was able to speak about her husband, you know, uh, congratulating him on winning the AEW TNT title. And, and she said some some other stuff, you know, nothing crazy, but it wasn't like what you're saying, more or less. It was kind of like she you could tell that in a classy way she was pissed, which is, I think, what you're alluding to, how it should be. Well, and that, dude, I've been reading a lot of shit about her that's come out since this happened. And I kind of had a feeling about this because that's just the vibe I got in general from the stuff that I've seen from her that like her work ethic is amazing. So like. A lot of people were really like, dude, that's so stupid. They got rid of her. Like, she's busting her ass. She cares about this shit. Like, it's, you know, which, hey, they just leave that go. And it's like, she's just going to go to AEWB with Miro. And, like, that's just going to be another package done in an AEW way. And I think Lana's already a star. I think it's only going to help Miro one way or another. And it's it's kind of a mistake for them to let her go. I think, uh, but what do I know? You know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's a bigger mistake them letting her go than I do think Strowman. Yeah. No, if, it, if that makes sense. No, for sure. And I don't know if you saw uh CM Punk kind of got some sort of press yeah. for, for making some Twitter comments about the product, basically just saying like how awful it is. Uh, he said, um, you know, you've got WWE who has multiple billion dollar television deals and the television's awful. You know, like if he ever went it back is. there, I'm just another guy and it's not even that. I'd be just another guy that's doing not good television. I want to do stuff that's good. <laughs> so, yeah. Like you know. it doesn't it dude, it's really weird because they have a lot of people that have been there and that have done good things. Like 
Bruce Pritchard understands what good TV is because he worked there when they did a lot of it. It's just Vince. You know, that's the thing. Vince was there when they did all of it. Well, and the other problem and too, matter. hey, Ed, and you know this, it's it's like, you know, I I say, say it's eye-rollingly, but nonetheless, it's when these things get, it's, you know, too big to fail and when the business overrides the art and things like that. And like Dave Meltzer has been consistently saying that I've seen on, you know, following social media is that the WWE is in a really good financial place. Even within everything that's going on in the pandemic, I think just overall, you know, I mean, yep. they did just freaking sell to the cock for a billion dollars yep. on, to, on top of the Fox deal and everything else. So people that like us that want to sit there and poke holes in their creative, it's easy to do. But on the business side of it, they're thriving. And, and that's like a conundrum in that company. And that's why I always say to you, hey, Ed, it, it's, it's like an oxymoron corporate professional wrestling is it, just weird. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, you know, I had a conversation with somebody uh, earlier over the weekend. Just we were talking about wrestling related stuff. And I just mentioned how it cracks me up, how you get like a lot of this armchair quarterbacking. Now, I understand that stuff when it comes to booking. That's just like what being a wrestling fan is like. That's what you do. Uh, but the business aspect, like when I see fans on here complaining about something that either AEW or WWE does or did, it kind of cracks me up because it's like, dude, you have no fucking frame of reference in this at all. Like, you don't know what it's like to have a billion dollars at your disposal to spend on something. And you're like, they should do this. Like, you have no idea what it's like to even operate with that kind of money uh, or what you're already on the hook for or what this is. or what, You know what I mean? Like when people are like, they should just go out and sign this guy and that dude and bring him in and make Michael Jordan a commentator. And it's like. Do you know the kind of money it would cost to do shit like stupid shit like that? Like, it's not possible. So, like, when people have that weird aspect of business with them, I'm like, you've never had a billion dollar company to, that you ran. So, I don't really want to hear it. That's what I was saying, even doing the show and in, in our knowledge, I'll disclaimer things that I'm like, you know, I, I only read this from this. I don't know this. You know, I'm yeah, pretty transparent that about that. Time. Yeah, because I hate I don't want to be hypocritical because I always I always said it's the classic, you know, the fat guy in the bar, the sports bar next to you with wing sauce all over him saying how he could throw better than Ben and Ben's a bum. And, and he never he, threw he's football like 500 in his life. pounds farting on a bench. Yeah, it's like, you know, it, it is what it is. That's just the constant aspect. But I, I definitely get what you're saying with this, you know, within this um, situation as well. Uh, now, a little bit further into the sports world, uh, Duke's Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski, is going to retire after the 21-22 season. Uh, obviously, that's a pretty big deal because he's probably the best uh, college basketball coach during our lifetime and probably the second greatest coach behind John Wooden uh, in college basketball history. Uh, and I'm kind of happy about it because maybe that means that Duke's not going to be good anymore because fuck Duke. They're another team that I've always hated, but I do actually like Coach K and he's also the uh, the men's Olympic team coach for a long, long time. So that's actually going to hurt them, I think, a great deal uh, as far as their Olympic stuff goes. So. Uh, shout out to Coach K. Of course, the next year is going to be kind of annoying because he's just going to yeah. get like the the goodbye party everywhere he goes. But it is what it is. Dude's yeah, definitely well, earned it. Been the coach there, I think, for 
I was going to say, you were born in 1980. Hey, he started coaching so, in 1980. Yeah. Since you were born, he's been the coach of Duke. Yep. I've never lived in this world a day where he was not the coach of the Duke Blue Devils. It's a good way to put How it. How weird is that? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, definitely a big marker. So I uh, figured we'd mention that. I know we don't talk a ton of college basketball here on the show, but that was big enough that, uh, you know, why the hell not? That, right? that was a, a growing up aspect too. We had a lot of friends and stuff. You know, I remember even specifically like junior high years, you know, just loving college basketball and talking with like Keen, our buddy, oh, shout yeah. out to Keen and things like that. And I, I always liked Coach K and had a, all new respect for him. There was a documentary I caught on ESPN when he was sick and, and things like that, yeah. that that showed you another side to the man that was, you know, just showed he was a, a really good person, which is always a, a big thing for me. So. So, yeah, shout out to Coach K for sure. Uh, another big story in the world of sports over the weekend. Uh, Julio Jones, uh, Atlanta Falcon wide receiver, traded to the Tennessee Titans along with a sixth round pick for a second and a fourth from the Titans. Um, not a bad haul uh, for them. Smart idea, I thought, for, uh, you know, Tennessee to try and get him. Um they didn't have to give up too much. Uh, it's probably because Julio is going to pull in a pretty big salary um, for at least a couple of years. Um, do you think this makes Tennessee better? Oh, 100%, man. That wide receiver room is ridiculous with with Brown on the other side. And he even tried to give him uh, his jersey, number 11, and Julio refused. He said, keep your jersey, young buck. I was reading that Dude, today, so that's really cool. I, the one thing that has me thinking – with them is like good luck fucking covering those two dudes like exactly uh, with, that's, with, that's what i'm saying with the, with the two six foot three fucking cornerbacks that you don't have like because that's what you're going to kind of need with these dudes so yeah i think you know and it's good too it's really good for tennessee because their defense is going to be pretty bad so yeah, <laughs> they're right. going to need to they're going to have to put up a lot of points got, this year yeah derrick henry running so you know, yeah, they definitely can have a really potent offense to balance out that defense. So we'll see. But I, I feel like it definitely obviously makes them a lot better. And as you mentioned, pretty pretty good trade for them. Nothing too crazy at all for Julio. Yeah. And dude, you know, it's it's pretty early on, but I I'm definitely looking forward to the NFL this upcoming year. A lot of stuff's gonna be different. Uh, and I just think it's going to be really cool as usual. And I still hate the extra game, but it's going to add in some more chaos in the league for the year. So it will at least be good for us when we watch it. That's for sure. Now into the world of sneakers a little bit here, the J uh, real quick, let's just go through these. Uh, these are the sneaker releases of the week, uh, or at least some of the, uh, the big hitters for the week that we're going to discuss as we do here. Uh, the J, I know you're probably really excited uh, about these Yeezy Boost 700s, these bright cyan <laughs> ones, uh, which, like, dude, just when you think a Yeezy couldn't get worse, uh, and then, you know, here they are. And, and you know what? Since, since we're here, because just I kind of set up this week's Goofs or Goofs is kind of like a little bit of a pop culture melting pot. Uh, it's kind of mixing things up this week with it. And okay. as part of it, it was just a quick shout out. So I'm just going to do it now since we're at the Yeezys, because okay. as we record, um, always transparent on the show on Tuesdays, today being specifically presently June 8th. Happy birthday, Kanye, because it is Kanye's birthday today. So speaking of the Yeezys, instead of uh, shouting them out at Goose or Goose, which I was going to do, we'll just shout them out here. Happy birthday, Kanye, you crazy genius asshole. Ugh. 
I'll just, <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> Nike Air Max 90 uh, with the Exister edition. Uh, super colorful. I, I appreciate the design on this. I'd never wear them, but nonetheless, uh, you know, the, the one thing that is kind of annoying me because I need a new pair of nineties and I need a new pair of Air Max ones. And I just hate all the fucking colorways they have out right now. It sucks. Yeah. No, nah, there's, I, I talk about it. I don't want to get into it. Cause I've said it a lot for those consistently listening to us on our sneaker talk and things like that. Uh, just, the busy, overly color ones are just not my cup of tea. I don't have any in the pretty big collection here. So that just says it all. Did you see uh, the Air Max Furiosa NRG uh, with the silver metallics? They're brand new. Um, I hate these with a passion. Like, hate them. No, nah, they're nasty. I Ugh. haven't pulled up. Yeah, not, not anywhere <laughs> near something I would think about buying. <laughs> Dude, the, okay, so Nike has LeBron's, LeBron 18s coming out. I don't like these ones either, but those insoles are actually really cool. Yeah, the insoles are okay, and, you know, we, we've broke down LeBron's too over over the months, and uh, they can be hit or miss. I have a few pairs myself. I know you don't own any, aren't too big on them. Uh, but, yeah, they could go either way. These ones are okay, but I'm, I'm with you. Um, with you pointing that out, the insoles are decent. And, uh, of course, the Nike Dunk Low Sunset Pulse comes out. Uh, these are insane looking. I kind of want to see them in person. They're definitely not something that I would be wearing, most likely. Uh, but I definitely like to see a pair because I want to see what the materials are like on them because they look like they're fucking metallic and insane. Yeah, see how they're like put together? Yeah, like they're just like the materials on them. If they're really good materials, they, they could be amazing looking shoes. They're pretty cool. Something different anyway, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, for sure. Now, this is a thing that people are probably going to be going nuts about. The Amon Manier uh, Air Jordan 3 uh, getting, of course, only a Nike sneakers release because they're going to be super fucking limited. And I'm kind of glad because I don't like them anyways. These are very boring to me, especially for a fucking collab of the Jordan 3. And this is like the best you can come up with. Uh, and you know, I don't really respect a lot of the Jordan threes when they just completely fuck off the elephant print on them too. So that's kind of lame with, within this uh, portion of sneaker talk, Hey Ed, are we going to get to the specific best Jordan releases? No, 21, we'll, 21. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that after the, just the week. Okay. I just brought it up because the, these are part of that. So yeah. So I'll save what I was going to say, but yeah, I'm with you. I mean, they're, they're decent, but they, they get away from the elephant print. That's one of the first things I noted. And uh, just the exclusiveness of them doesn't mean the Jay's getting them any size, you know, anytime soon. So, you know, it kind of just gets brushed by for me when that's the case. And dude, I really like Nike blazers. Okay. And I was looking forward to the Sakai Nike blazer lows. And then I saw them and I was pretty disappointed in kind of like what they did with them. Um, so, yeah, I no longer give a shit, but it's probably going to put some hype on the regular Blazers. So keep that in mind if you like them, because they're going to be harder to get. Yeah, I, I do want to get a pair of Blazers eventually. Uh, I don't think this is going to be what I do. And again, it just goes in with all the factors that we have to discuss that we know as sneakerheads and in the modern sneaker app situations that they're going to be too tough for the J to get anyway. So I'd rather go for a pair of Blazers that are more reasonable to get and that I'm more into anyway. What what are your speaking of that real quick? What are you, are your blazers just plain uh, black and white? 
The blue. That you have? They're blue. Blue and okay. white. I was just curious real quick. Yeah. And it. I haven't even worn them yet. It's just, see, that's another thing. Like, and that, I'll tangent into this and like when we get through the week uh, as far as picking up sneakers and buying stuff recently, but I'll, I'll digress. Uh, now they're doing, dude, I like these a lot. The Reebok question low gray toes. Uh, I kind of need something that's like almost all white, but like not completely all white. And these would be perfect. And, uh, but I'm probably not going to get them. Yeah. I was just looking at those. They are nice. But yeah, I, I, I said like, you know, talking about what I'm actually going to get within this week's sneaker talk, it's probably going to be a, be a while before the J jumps on anything, you know, budget wise, unless there's something super enticing, but that, what we've been kinda, covering so far is not the case. That's kind of what I was saying about yeah. like what I was going to get into in a minute here, but cause there's only gotcha. a few more things. we got the Nike donkey high in the game Royals. Uh, I love these. I like these are awesome. Uh, they'll be brutal to get. So, of yep. course, naturally, that won't be happening. Uh, the Pharrell and Adidas NMD uh, in all orange, which I actually kind of like. But, again, uh, I don't fuck with NMDs like that are the human races and shit like that. I just I'm not a big fan, but I do like these, though. Yeah, they're OK. They're They're not really my style. Your style is more the Air Jordan 1 Light Fusion Red. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which I, dude, I'll be honest with you. I, I kind of like these. Like, because I don't think they're going to look pink like that in person. I think yeah, you could put them fashion wise. Right. You could put them well, fashion wise with some stuff. Dude, you know, this is what I'm hoping for with these, right? I'm thinking these would be sick with like an old school, like mid 90s, like, uh, Houston Rockets jersey. Yeah. Like the red and yellow like red, that. yep. That'd, That'd be, cool. be sick. But that's the uh that's the releases for this week. Uh and what I was going to kind of say is, you know, as much as I love sneakers recently, I've been so incredibly frustrated with my collection of stuff. Just how much shit there is and just yeah digging boxes out and like moving shit around which i was doing the other day and i just got to a point where i'm like fuck this and just walked away from it uh but i'm not buying anything even though i might want something like i'm trying not to buy anything right now because i just have to like pull pairs throw some stuff away probably donate a few things and just make some overall space because it's just cluttered to fuck right now it's a mess. yeah talk about going hand in hand with the wwe spring cleaning talk uh we're yeah. here here at the j compound we're in the same boat we're spring cleaning and downsizing and i'm i'm trying to do the same thing uh, i think i mentioned to you the, the way i have everything set up and displayed my shoes are just open in just an open area of my office and i have like a, a shoe rack well, I bought the actual boxes, like the plastic boxes, you yeah, know, yeah, the yeah, display yeah. boxes. So I'm yep. converting to that. So, you know, hopefully, as you know, hey, I'm slowing down a bit. The Jay's going on a much needed, much deserved vacation soon. And we'll be filling everybody in on on the What's Real podcast with that. With that. We're going to do some cool stuff uh, working around that. Give give the whole team here a little bit of a, a different kind of couple weeks and a breather, but still bring everybody uh, that joins us on our journey some content. Uh, but yeah, with all that, I'm hoping to have some 
free time, knock on wood, because you know that goes, hey, I'm probably jinxing myself. But uh, as far as work goes, to be able to do some of this stuff. And that's that's one of the things on my checklist is getting uh, the whole sneaker collection converted and reorganized with the new boxes. Yeah, I'm going to have to do something here soon, man, because this shit's just not working out for me at the moment. It's annoying and it's like really kind of clutter up the closet. I was just going to say, I always hated clutter. So you just said the word. I was going to throw I mean, it out there. What's well, not, it's not so much clutter. It's just shits packed everywhere. Like every time I want a pair of shoes, I got to move five pairs just of shoes. Digging. Yeah. yeah. It's just ridiculous. And then like you start ripping shoe boxes and stuff because like they just eventually do that. They're just cheap, shitty cardboard. So yeah. uh, it's just, it's annoying. But anyway, uh, moving right along here, the best Air Jordans of 2021 so far was an article this week uh, that I saw on Complex.com. So I figured the J would be kind of appropriate for us to kind of go through these and uh, just see what they have here. So these are like a top 10 for the year 2021 so far. Uh, first up, the J, number 10, Air Jordan 35 Low, Luka Doncic. Uh, I like these. I, I like these when these came out. Of course, I don't have them. I didn't even try to buy them. Um, but like, you know, how like we talk about hooping and shit and like the shoes that you would wear if you did do something like that. This is kind of what I think I'd be wearing. I'd be wearing like a low and I like the new Jordans for stuff like that. So I, I think that's probably pretty good guess at what I'd be wearing if I was playing right now. Yeah, these are really cool. I love these. The, the tongue and, you know, this is a colorway that's kind of what I say against what my typical interest is, it's kind of outlandish, has the bit of pink, like hot pink throughout it, but it, it goes with how they put this shoe together. Yeah. It just, it, it works out well. I think it's a, it's a cool looking shoe too. And uh, you know, and it's cool too, because it's Lucas first Jordan. So as far yeah. as being a Jordan brand athlete. So uh, number nine, the air Jordan one high university blue, um, I agree with them on this. This is a very good call. This is, I think, one of the best Jordans of the year so far. Uh, I don't have I like them these again, a lot. but I like them a lot. Yep. Another colorway of the J, the, you know, kind of light blue, you know, obviously university blue, the Carolina colors, but uh, it also goes in as we always shout out our alma mater, Woodland Hills, yep. uh, which I have a few similar colorways. So I would have loved to have tried to get my hands on these, but didn't. At number eight, the Air Jordan 3, Cool gray, uh, not for me. Uh, not a fan of cool gray on the threes whatsoever. Yeah, I like them. I mean, they still they kept the uh, speaking of the elephant print, kept the elephant print for the threes, which they they should. That's why we were kind of in agreement on disagreeing with Nike for the the ones we were talking about, which we'll get into again later. Which was I was, I was going to bring that up earlier, but yeah, I'm not not too big on the cool grays, but I think they're all right. At number seven, the Air Jordan 1 High 85 Neutral Gray. I really like these ones. I'm, I don't. They're not really my cup of tea. Not not the biggest on them. See, I like them because they're just simple and plain. That's, Very simple. Yeah. That, which I think it, it works effectively on the Air Jordan 1. But it's to me, it's it's almost impossible to fuck up the Jordan 1. Like you got to do some really stupid yeah, shit. Yeah, you just got to get yeah crazy with it because it's it's a really great silhouette and a great shoe. Uh, up next, number six. Uh, this is one that I do have the Air Jordan Six Carmine. I fully agree. I fucking love the Carmines. It's one of my favorite. It is my favorite Air Jordan Six of all time, and it's one of my favorite Air Jordans of all time. 
You know how I feel about him as well. Hey, Ed, I was jelly when you won him in that contest, but also very happy for you. That was cool. And um, we each have one pair, one actual specific pair from this list. So these are the pair you have and own, the Carmines. And mine are a little down the list, and I'll shout those out. But yeah, got to love the Carmines classics. And I still haven't wore them, of course. So <laughs> of course. that kind of goes hand in, in hand. Even in the summer. Uh, yeah, It's true. Uh, number five, the Air Jordan 4 UNC. Uh, I think a lot of people like these way more than I do, but I do like them. It's not yeah, that see, I, I like them a lot. Them. Um, it's just, dude, this is weird for me. Uh, I don't like fours that don't have the Nike Air branding on the back. I don't like the fucking Jumpman on the back of these on that. You know that like rubber piece that they have oh, on yeah. the back? I know what you're talking about. I yeah. just I think the Nike Air on the back looks perfect, and I think the Jumpman looks like shit on the back of it. I'm not a fan. I gotcha, but yeah, I, I like these a lot. Ah, okay. Coming up here, number four, the Air Jordan 5 Raging Bull. The J, you got a pair of these. I like these Ding, a ding, lot. ding. These yep. are the ones that J have, a.k.a. the Toros. We, we shouted them out. I busted these out Memorial Day weekend. Hey, yeah, you know, I got uh, the test run on them, and yeah, I fucking love these, man. Uh, you know, goes easy with any anything red. You know, nice red polo, black shorts, and some raging bowls. Can't go wrong. So, what? How did you feel after uh, wearing them once? Like, were they they weren't too fucked up? They were they creased no, up? Were great. anything that you were mad about on these at all? No. The one interesting aspect that I didn't really realize, and I don't know if you know of, and you could see in the picture. Do you see like the plastic? part on the laces on the upper oh, yeah. part of the laces yeah, the, the lace holder. So I, the lace holder i wasn't familiar with so that was cool to fuck with um and i thought you know i was hoping it w- wasn't going to be too clunky or goofy and it wasn't so, okay but, see, yeah, I, I really love these man i don't know if you're aware of this or not but there's a lot of people that are very particular about the lace lock on these uh and i mean they lace them all over the shoe like there's dudes that have, oh. there's dudes that lace them in up by the toes, like on the first level of your laces. There's dudes that do it like like see where they are in the picture. It would be yep. like right as the it starts going up for the ankle, they'll like put them on the front right there. I've seen dudes put them on the sides of stuff. I've seen people flip them backwards, uh, depending on where the wording is, because sometimes the wording is on the button itself. Like it'll say Nike or have the Jordan symbol on the little button. Um, And then sometimes it's on the the plastic part on the front. So like depending on where the wording is, they'll have it flipped out differently. Uh, So it's like, dude, if you let it, the Jordan 5 could be the most annoying, confusing shoe you ever fuck with just because of the goddamn lace lock on them. Yeah, that's that's what I was scared of, but I, I worked well with it. I kind of tucked the laces after I tied them. It's kind of thing, and they went well with the low sock I wore. Now, this is not this particular Air Jordan 5, but it, the Air Jordan 5 is a shoe I've actually played basketball in before, and I will say that, like, back in the day and shit, dude, that the lace lock was, like, a game changer big time. Yeah, it's clutch. Instead of having your fucking laces flopping around everywhere. Yep. Uh, But moving right along here, number three, the Travis Scott Air Jordan 6 British khaki. Uh, I don't give a fuck about Travis Scott. I just don't. Um, But I like these. I just think because I like the sixes and I just think it's such a different kind of a colorway. Uh, And it has the the right branding uh, on the shoe. So 
Uh, I like them, but, you know, the hype kills them and I'll never get a pair because of that shit. But I do like them. And of course, I always just make the little joke uh, on the Travis Scott's. They always have like the weed pouch. <laughs> yeah, side. that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We uh, talked about these before. These are really cool, really creative uh, for my goofy creative mind. They remind me of like Star Wars, like Tatooine. Yeah. It's like the shoes, fan almost. color. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but they're different. You know, I like that. I, I'm shocked still in a lot of ways that they allow Travis Scott to play with the Jordan silhouettes and stuff as much as they do. Because Nike's pretty money, 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 money. Yeah, hey, you know, you got why. it. And it builds the hype. So speaking of hype, that leads us to number two, the trophy room Air Jordan trophy 1 rooms. highs. These are amazing. Uh, I will never even see a pair of these, let alone get them. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're fucking. Don't tremendous. you love on the uh, the complex article price one ninety? Yeah, that's that was retail, <laughs> guys. Go buy a pair now. <laughs> fucking eight thousand dollars later. <laughs> yeah. If you can even, I don't even know if you can get them on resale because that's how limited these were. These are ones that I always talk about. The one of the aspects of my sneaker head them is the fact that I wear my shoes. Like to me, there's no point not to. But these ones, if I hypothetically got my hands on them, hey Ed, I'd be displaying them. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, the number ones. That's the, what we yeah, the Amamenier Jordan threes that you got to be fucking kidding me. There's no way yeah, that's the best was, Jordan of the year. Yeah, very surprised by that choice darn you complex but hey opinions are like buttholes hey you know, what can you say yeah and we all have apparently tons of them because you know <laughs> people have shitloads of opinions so uh, a couple sad notes this week uh first up in the world of sports uh former giants head coach jim fossil uh passed away um that's kind of sad news that just came in today uh essentially before we we're uh, gonna do the show um, so that's that's a bummer. Uh, I remember him most from, you know, the Super Bowl team that lost to uh, the Ravens. Uh, he was the coach of um, dude seemed to get more out of his football teams than he probably should have. So I can always give him that. Uh, and he comes from a football family. Yep. Yeah, it's it's always sad to see. We like to shout out our quote unquote pop culture umbrella passings and, and guys that, you know, we remember watching and, and growing up with, you know, and. Fossil, you know, he had the bold guarantee of a playoff bid late in the 2000 season, seemingly catapulting the Giants to a spot in the Super Bowl, you know, back then. That was a big one. And I guess uh, they didn't really say a cause of death to this point yet. Hey, you know, uh, just out of curiosity, uh, but that he, uh, his son stated that his father was taken to a Las Vegas hospital with chest pains and uh, died uh, not soon after that while being treated on Monday. So rest in power, rest in peace to, to Coach Jim Fossil. And that's not it, unfortunately. Also, a, a big rest in peace to Clarence Williams III, uh, actor most known as Link from the Mod Squad. Uh, we know him very well from movies like Tales from the Hood and, of course, none other than Half-Baked. Uh, dude was a really good actor. Uh, he was in a lot of stuff uh, from television movies. Uh, had a very, very significant career for a long, long time. Uh, and obviously, I would say it's safe to say that Clarence Williams III is an absolute favorite of the What's Real podcast. So salute to him for all of his work in the world of movies and TV. Just a couple weeks ago, hey, uh, during our trip to the drive-in with Joe Bob, we actually uh, talked about Maniac Cop 2, yep. which he was in. So 
coincidental there, not too long after uh, passing away at 81 from colon cancer. Very sad. Uh, rest in power, Clarence Williams III. And I got to leave you with this one. Hate you up. Cuban B. Indeed. Uh, and just one more thing this week before we take a uh, commercial break here. Uh, George A. Romero. Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, the stuff, uh, his work that's being done posthumously, of course, uh, with his movie, uh, The Amusement Park, premiering on Shutter today which, by the way, we're going to take a look at here on the show next week. Um, but there is a, a story in Variety this past week where uh, Romero's widow, uh, uh, Suzanne Destrocia Romero, is in the process of completing her late husband, George Romero's first attempt at filmmaking, which tells the story of an African-American father and son. Uh, although, although the zombie pioneer is often dubbed the godfather of zombies, the unnamed 21-minute silent short thought to have been shot in 1961 remains ghoul-free. The film got shelved, according to her, when the Night of the Living Dead director's commercial company Leighton Image started getting more work and remained untouched. Um, she's knitting together uh, narration and some music for the film, and she hopes to release it on the festival circuit later this year. So that's this one thing that we're talking about, plus the amusement park, plus uh, the Romero novel that was fin finished uh, by Daniel Krauss last year. Uh, you know, a lot of Romero stuff still coming uh, after he's passed, uh, you know, for the last few years. So that's nice for me as a huge George Romero fan to see, uh, even regardless of the quality of the stuff at this point, I'm still interested to see as much stuff as I possibly can. So, you know, bring on as much as you possibly can. At this point, I'm fine. Uh, my, my sentiments, yeah, my sentiments exactly. Hey, you know, and it's just really cool what um, Suzanne, George Romero's wife's doing to keep her husband's legacy alive. And uh, that's definitely it, man. Anybody you're a huge fan of that you watch their classic work time and time again, we always state that's why it's classic because it's timeless. You can watch it as many times as you, you know, as possible. And to have new content, whatever it may be, it's just going to be worth checking out, you know, especially as a, a fellow up and coming, however you want to call me, you know, being an independent film, it, it'd be really cool to see his first stab at, at a film, you know, 20, 21 minute short film. Uh, I'd be really interested in that. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting to see the student films of people basically, exactly, uh, which we're, yeah. we're going to talk more about that exact topic later in the show. Um, Do you know offhand, hey, how, how old would have, have Romero been in 1961? I was kind of trying to tackle that while we're uh, that's recording, a good, but I didn't get his birth date. I don't know his, the year he was born off the top of my head, um, so I'm just going to look it up real quick. He was... All right, what year? Yeah, I was 60, 19, 1940. Okay, so he'd have been, he he'd have been 20, 21 years old. 20, 21, yeah. So, cool. I was just curious. That's cool, though. Yeah, 20, 21-year-old Romero student film taking a stab at it and why not we're becoming a legend there you yeah go. so we are going to take our first commercial break and when we come back it's time to dip back into the world of wrestling with the a and e biography on the best there is the best there was and the best there ever will be brett the hitman heart so stay tuned guys we'll be back right after this on the what's real podcast Want to advertise on the What's Real podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Would you like to advertise? Send us an email today. This is Ed. 
And this is the J. For the What's Real podcast, check out episode 75 next week. First up, me and the J are going to head down to the drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob for another mystery double feature. Then we're going to check out the long-awaited George Romero film, Amusement Park. And of course, we're going to head over to the dark side of the ring, this time on Dynamite Kid. And there's never an unabundance of goofs, as we will have another classic segment of Goofs Are Goofs 75. All this and much more next week on episode 75 of the What's Real podcast. And we're back, and it is time to get into the A&E biography on Brett the Hitman Hart, uh, one of my personal favorite wrestlers of all time. Um, now, we've kind of gone through this biography series at this point. We've seen all kinds of different stuff. Uh, I think we could say to this point we saw a little bit more of a hit piece on Macho Man than we thought we'd see. Um a bit more truthful biography on Warrior than we were probably expecting. Um, a really surprisingly good Mick Foley one that maybe we weren't expecting, um, at least in my opinion. Um, and some really good episodes overall. And I was really looking forward to this one, too, because obviously the Shawn Michaels one was good. And you know that they're very much tied in with each other. So I thought we'd get a lot of repeat stuff here. And we really didn't, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, and I'll get into this more later too, but I was kind of surprised that we basically saw very little, if nothing from behind the shadows, the Brett, the Hitman Hart documentary, um, which kind of surprised me. I thought we'd see more stuff from that, but they did not really, they delved into the subject matter, but they didn't really talk about that a whole lot. Yeah. And there's, there's just so much within these things that they can cover. So you're going to miss some stuff here and there because I, I, I do. They do mention it at one point, like really quick. Like they, one of, Yes, they do mention it. You know, yep. one of the talking heads said, you know, there was a documentary team following Brett at the time of the, the screw job and things like that. But, yeah, I'm with you. It's surprising um, for, for my initial reaction. Hey, you know, um, I really liked how they put the beginning of this together. It almost seemed different than the previous seven in a lot of different ways, yep. which, which was cool about this. Cause I mean, we, we talked about it. There were, there was different production teams within this whole series, putting together various episodes. So it wasn't just, it wasn't like dark side of the ring, for example, that had the same crew, you know, crew putting the, the consistent episodes together. The, this particular one on A and E had different varying crews and, and directors, producers on varying episodes. So I think that made it different, maybe a little uneven here and there, but uh, I, I, overall like how it was and the Bret Hart one in particular here at the outset kind of stood out from that. They even used animation at certain points yeah. when he was talking about yep. that. Like, let's throw that out there initially. Of course, you know, they begin by talking about his childhood and upbringing and Brett tells a very interesting story where his dad, Stu Hart had a bear, a former circus bear, like an actual bear living under the family's porch. So Brett would get a fudgesicle from the freezer and, and let it melt in the summer onto his bare feet, and the bear would lick the fudgesicle off his feet. And his mom would be like, did you take a bath today? And he's like, yeah. And he's referencing the fact that a bear licked his feet clean, and they did, like, animation towards that story. And he's like, yep. uh, yeah, he's like, I just thought it was normal. I thought everybody had a bear living under their porch, 
which which is like the beginning of the beginning with how crazy it must have been being a heart kid at the the infamous heart house in calgary yeah they don't get into the very deep specifics of stuff they talk about some of the stuff here but they don't really tell you all the stuff that these kids were subjected to uh because they were um they had a very strange upbringing for sure um and you know they always tell that story about how you know Brett's mom, Helen, didn't really care for professional wrestling. And then her entire family became embroiled in it, whether becoming wrestlers, being married to wrestlers, being involved in wrestling to some capacity, uh, which, you know, the the Hearts are definitively one of the biggest and best families in the history of professional wrestling. They're they're wrestling royalty, so to speak, uh, especially uh, in Canada. And the father, Stu, the patriarch, of course, famously ran and the territory days, the biggest Canadian territory stampede pro wrestling. And they show that and how the hearts were involved. Like you mentioned, I think the only actual heart brother that didn't wrestle was still a referee. So yep. like you said, they're all somehow uh, part of it. And uh, yeah, they, they go over the stampede days and how Brett, you know, he talks about, he wanted to be an actor and he went into the whole thing that was hilarious. They went and bought a lizard. And made yeah, they, like he student to be a, films. A director. He wanted yeah. to make movies. Yeah. So that hit home with me because, of course, that's what we and did, I, you know. And dude, I like that because that's something about Brett that I'd never seen or heard about before. So I thought that was really cool. That was something new that I thought they brought to the documentary that we didn't already hear. Or see yep. And they, they had the footage. They had footage of the movie with the lizard. Yep. And he's like, Yeah, our production team went under because our star, the lizard, he croaked <laughs> yeah he was like it's like you know king kong died during the making of the movie <laughs> yeah. you know? but yeah i i mean i thought that was very cool it kind of showed you too that these kids kind of grew up in like a creative fostered environment uh whether it was wrestling or not like their parents kind of gave them uh the ability to do some things that uh you know not that kid, normal kids back then didn't get a chance to do or their parents would have you know not been hearing that shit at all so uh, i thought that was pretty neat and that was pretty cool and obviously you know it's pretty crazy to think about bret hart uh started wrestling in the 70s in, in stampede but he was right there on the cusp of everything uh whenever the wwf went national uh 1984 uh he was wrestling there on and off just kind of like as an undercard guy and eventually they'd put him in the tag team with Jim the Anvil Neidhart, which would become the Hart Foundation. Um, but Brett was there pretty early on um, and didn't really get a foothold until a few years later. Uh, and the reasoning being is because whenever his dad uh, was bought out by Vince McMahon, he did so with the idea that there would be jobs given to his son, Brett, the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith, uh, who at the time was his son-in-law, uh, also a job given to the dynamite kid, which because he was, you know, Stampede's best worker at the time. And obviously Jim, the Anvil, Neidhart, another family member. So Vince said no problem. And all four of them got jobs. And surprisingly enough, both of them uh, are all, you know, all four guys ended up being in two different tag teams, which ended up starting their career with and making uh, pretty big waves. Yeah, that was the, at the time. kind of the golden era of tag team wrestling. You know, you had the rockers, the heart foundation, the bulldogs, all those kind of teams. So they started yep. with all that. Cause they, they showed that footage also uh, at this part, basically 
with Brett getting interviewed by um, me and Gene Okerlund in 1984. You know, and he's yeah. like real kind of subdued and like talking about making his mark and stuff. But that's how long he was in the WWF back back in 84 on. Yeah. And they start originally saying by he was supposed to have a cowboy gimmick, which we've heard yeah. that for years. Yeah. Um, which never came to be, thankfully. Um, and, you know, it's weird because like I, I remember Brett a lot uh, more specifically from Heart Foundation days like but he was always kind of around and he was always pretty good. Um, and he kind of stuck around in that capacity, uh, for a long time. It's just literally the case of like sticking it out until the time is right. Like that's exactly. 100% that's a hundred percent what Bret Hart yeah. did. Yeah. Michaels um, was similar to that in a way too. Cause they came up again in that specific era of tag team wrestling and just stuck around until they kind of developed into, ridiculous technical you know and, and single stars and and that's kind of where brent stood out to me as a kid was his like intricacies in the ring he had like how he hit the turnbuckle of course like that, that's oh, yeah, out to me as a kid nobody else yeah. did that you know yeah, that's, that, that's those Owen. little details yeah of course yep that's always been like a hard family trademark um but yeah i mean dude brett he started out being in a tag team and that tag team became one of their linchpin tag teams, uh, or at least a referencing point for the company as far as what a really good tag team is. And at that point, it become a multiple time tag team champion. Um, and then it became the time period uh, years later where they were kind of transitioning him out of the tag team. So this was a portion where there was a couple failed starts of a push for him as a singles guy. Uh, they tried to do it shortly before they broke up the Hart Foundation and it really fizzled out. Uh, this was like in 88, 89 that they tried to do this and it just didn't. It, they quickly just changed their mind and put the Hart Foundation back together. Um, but then they became the team that we know them as today. Uh, then once they were broken up, Bret Hart went on a singles run and it wasn't long before they had him paired up with Mr. Perfect and they were feuding over the Intercontinental Championship, which he would win at SummerSlam 91, which was the one thing that kind of solidified him as a singles wrestler at that time. And that's and something that, that I remember pretty vividly. And that's exactly what that was. Yeah, this started like like kind of the backbone main portion it kind of carried the middle of this documentary before getting into all the the controversial stuff you know stemming of course from the montreal screw job which we'll get into but this was like the jace pump up shit when they like showed the footage of brett like getting built up and how everybody like all the talking heads within this documentary were saying how he was like even vince mcmahon vince mcmahon was good in this one more more than other ones because it, it wasn't like too much of them. And he, he just said the right things in the right place that were just kind of quick and to the point. And he was talking about like at this point, how Bret Hart was just like the true champion. Cause that's kind of what was emphasized here was how serious Bret took it as champion. And, and that could be Dude. to his jet detriment as well, but nonetheless in his prime man, like he just, you know, that's why he transcended all the others. Like Vince said, that's why it would send him on a singles run. He got the most fan mail out of anybody in the WWF at the time. Yep. And it's, you know, obviously Brett would move on past the Intercontinental after basically conquering that, you know, like being a multiple time Intercontinental champion. Um, but then he would go on to be the world heavyweight champion and he would beat Ric Flair. They kind of glossed over that, which I thought I was a little bummed out about, but I whatever. Um, and they got into his run as champion. 
and specifically when he he retired, he he was tied with the most runs of anybody. Uh, or when he left the, the WWE, it was five runs with the WWF Championship, which was the most of anybody uh, tied with Hogan at that point. And this, to me, was the most telling thing in this whole thing, kind of like what you were saying, talking about Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon said that Bret Hart was by far the most credible champion they'd ever had up to that point and that they most likely will ever have in their company. And I think that that's probably the best way to sum up Bret Hart. You would always get good matches. He could work pretty much with anyone. Um, You knew what you got with him. Um, He was money in the ring. Um, People bought into his stuff. Um, You never heard a lot of people chanting boring and shit during Bret's matches. He was always doing something. Uh, He could sell. He could, you know, I think that Bret Hart honestly has the most credible argument for at least being the greatest North American wrestler of all time. I know that you go with Michaels and stuff like that. And I, I agree that Michaels is one of the best ever. I just think Brett's longevity, the fact that he, you know, the tag team, the, he did a little bit of everything. He could work with anybody. The only problem with anybody really that we know of that he had was with Michaels. Understandably. So Michaels will even own it up to this point. Like, I just don't think there was a lot of points in Brett's career where he was bad or lazy or just was like, uh, like he was always at least a very baseline greatness. And I think that that's kind of important because other guys have major ups and downs and shit in their career where they weren't as good as they once were or vice versa. Brett was always really, really good. Yeah, that's great points, man. And you know me, even with with Michael's kind of edging them out in my perspective and opinion, I always love Brett. Brett's always right there. Definitely good arguments. And another thing I would throw out here, hey, you know, with all those characteristics that you named, and this kind of correlates with Michael's as well, was Brett's promo skills, just like Michael's, were kind of like unique to, to each of themselves. Where yeah. they, they weren't like the the Hogan types and of course like the Rocks. But for what they did, it worked. And that just added to the character, too. Because, of course, in the WWF, you have to be able to do promos on your own other than them finding out different ways to, to cheat. But, you know, you know, Brett in particular, you know, was able to do his own. And I always thought that, like, he, he had his own unique promo style. And that gets brought up in here, you know, them showing some of his, his better promos and different things like that. And that just adds to all those other accolades that you were going through from, from the in-ring and being able to work with everybody to his longevity and consistency. And he was also a pretty good promo. Like he, he cracked us up at times. Like we were there in Pittsburgh when he was like the, the oh, heel, yeah. he was the North, like North American split. He was the, the heel in America and the face in Canada and he was in Pittsburgh for a raw at the height of that. And he famously called it, called us in Pittsburgh. Shout it out. Hey, y'all. The, the, basically the asshole of America is <laughs> uh, like, if I was going to give the United States an enema, I'd stick the hose right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. <laughs> but then I, I love to, in, in uh, wrestling with shadows, whenever he's talking about that. And he's like, yeah, he's like, like whenever they had me doing the heel stuff in Pittsburgh, he's like, it was fun. He's like, but you know, but, and then they show him saying exactly what I just said. And then it comes back <laughs> to him. He's like, but I, I don't feel that way about Pittsburgh. I actually like <laughs> Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's a really nice place, <laughs> like, yeah. it's, but it's, 
it was dude i like that because it, we fucked around and somehow saw one of the most iconic raw moments maybe of all time exactly um, so like that's really cool um and dude we got really lucky because we pretty much got to see brett's career um from beginning to end which is insane that you know like we kind of grew up with bret hart in the wrestling business um but we did and it's and saw him a bunch fortunate. of times in person absolutely man i've seen him wrestle a ton of matches uh and i'm i'm very proud of that like as a wrestling fan that's one dude that i felt like i like oh i missed him like no i've seen plenty of bret like in person whatever like i've seen plenty and I, I'm happy that I got the opportunity. And this this part goes into where, uh, again, where he kind of transcended the business in his prime. And they showed the clip of when he was on The Simpsons, which we, of course, loved because yep. we grew up as Simpsons fans. And then Bret Hart was on it. And then, uh, you know, he was on that Lonesome Dove show, which was yep. in our wheelhouse, but nonetheless, like a, a pretty, you know, pretty big national TV uh, miniseries movie thing uh, that was a big deal at the time and all that kind of stuff. And they showed, which I love, dude, the classic WWF Bret Hart commercial where the kids in the the back hallway oh, and it's it really Brett? darkly lit. He's like, Brett, and he comes yeah. back like that. Yeah, that was all this part. And then it goes into the the crescendo, of course, and everything with the Montreal screw job and the aftermath of the Montreal screw job. Yeah, and of course, you know, not to get into everything here in super detail, but, you know, they talked about the death of Owen. Uh, and, and, dude, that's one thing I really liked on here is they kind of showed, like, the relationship that him and Owen had because of wrestling. Like, they weren't Yeah, and their feud in particular, that made them closer. Yeah. Yes, that, which I thought that, that stuff was really cool. And you got a lot. And the, the thing that I really liked about this, dude, was – you got a lot of Bret Hart, but like from the wrestling aspect of like, he's telling you like at this time I was trying to do like this and we were thinking that I would do this, but like, then we get in the ring and me and him were telling the story and then da, 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 da. And like, I felt like that's the most backstory I've ever really gotten on what, what him and Owen were trying to do in that feud behind the scenes, which I thought was really cool. Uh, because to me, that's always like, dude, there's a ton of stuff with Bret Hart. That's really good. His crowning achievement in his career is that feud with Owen. Uh, it's one of the best things of all time. We managed to get one of the best WrestleMania matches of all time. We managed to get a really, really good cage match at SummerSlam out of that. Um, and just yeah, that whole that. year of them two feuding was it, it was one of the best things, if not the best thing in wrestling at that time, without a doubt. That's, I, I think it was Sam Roberts on here that says, which we always said in our little group and all that of wrestling fans, like personal friends, that probably the best opener of any pay-per-view ever was WrestleMania 10. Yep. For Owen. I'd agree with that. It's really, really, really difficult for something to beat that because uh, that match is just so fucking good. Um, and of course, they get into like, you know, the whole Montreal screw job. Like you said, they didn't really get into a lot of the WCW stuff, um, probably for good reason, uh, because the one match that they would have probably talked about uh, the most or that they should have talked about the most is a match that they can't talk about because he, 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 uh, he wrestled uh, Mr. Waugh Crispin, yeah. you know, CB. Yeah. in that match. So, but yeah, I mean, dude, overall, this was really, really good. And I mean, to the point where 
this might have been my favorite one of the entire season. I just like the way that they framed it. it. A lot of it felt like it was actual Bret Hart perspective, not the company telling a story or something like that. That was you had to know in the head. That was uh, the Brett's biggest finger, aspect of this. His fingerprints were all over this. I feel exactly. like that whenever, for whatever reason, like whenever they call him, like, hey, Brett, we want to do this. And he's like, all right, but like, you know, I get final say or you know, I get to do this or I get to do that. And they let him do it. So where other wrestlers might not care, um, he does. So I appreciated that. And I think because of that, this is probably my favorite, favorite biography that A&E did on the WWE and out of these. One, one other wrestling aspect that we'd have to bring up was another of Brett's best matches of all time that we loved. And they did a little portion of it here was of course he versus uh, Davy boy. Oh yeah. In, uh, Wembley stadium in London in front of like, uh, you know, I think Diana's on there and she said it sold out like overnight, the entire Wembley stadium, like it beat out Madonna and Dude, Michael Jackson at the time. Did you ever hear the actual real life story behind how that match happened? I don't know. Like there was a, it, they had a choice. So Vince McMahon was like, you know, talking to, to Brett and, uh, was saying like, you know, what are we going to do with the Intercontinental Championship? Like they were thinking about having him lose it. And Vince basically said, well, here, here's what I got on the table. I got, we might potentially do SummerSlam in um, England. And we were thinking about pairing you up with Davey. Uh, but we don't know if we're doing it there. And if we don't, we're going to do Landover, Maryland, and you're going to wrestle Sean. And Brett was like, oh, okay, well, here's the deal. Uh, if I end up wrestling Sean, I want to do it as a ladder match. Because uh, they already kind of had some ladder matches at the time on the road and stuff like that. So that was the plan there. But if you end up doing it in the UK, you should have me and Davey main event the show and I'll drop the belt to him. And because the plan was to get the belt on Sean, but they didn't know how to do it necessarily. And they didn't want uh, Brett to lose to, to Sean because he was going to get moved up to the main event. So that was kind of like the idea going into all that. Uh, and I, I always thought that was cool, like kind of like showing you like what would have happened if they didn't do the show in the UK. It would have went to Shawn Michaels and Brett would have beat him in a ladder match. Yeah. Yeah. That's so awesome. It, it was funny, too. I got to say uh, just real quick back on the screw job in the aftermath of that. I was actually watching that portion with with my wife and th- this documentary sucked her in. She hasn't really watched any of these with me. And, okay. uh, so she was watching like towards the screw job. And we were both just effing Vince afterwards because he's still so smug about it, even to this day. Like even in this documentary, like Dude, he, I don't know, man. It's just yeah, Vince shit. I get he, it, but he, he does like look. I manned up and I went in there and I faced him. It's like yeah, and you got yeah, exactly. That's what you did. Like, <laughs> yeah. You don't fucking. Like, dude, my favorite thing. Okay, this is my fuck you, Vince thing that I have. Right. And I'm kind of, I kind of agree. I know exactly what you're talking about. But my favorite fucking thing is from Beyond the Mat or or whatever it's from. It, is that from Beyond the Mat? Beyond the it might be from Wrestling with Shadows. I don't I don't remember. But like after the after he gets knocked the fuck out, and they show you that clip of him walking down the hallway like all stumbly and what a like holding <laughs> yeah. his head. Spaghetti legs. Yeah. yeah. And it's dude, I see it every time. Like every time I see that clip, it's like, yeah, because Brett just fucking knocked your screws loose and you're fucking bumbling and stumbling down the hallway. And that's that's what he said in this uh documentary here. He was like 14 years. You dude. know, this guy just shit on everything that I did for him and just completely turned on me in real life. And I just let him have it. 
it was so funny too whenever like they show right after the match like after the aftermath with vince out there and shit and vince is like boy i tell you uh, i'd uh Bret Hart sure could spit, yeah. Sure could spit. Let me tell you. <laughs> and they just show him like right in his face. Loody. And he's like wiping it out of his eye like an asshole. <laughs> like, hey man, you know, like the the fucking the gloves are off, dude. Like at that point, like I don't know if somebody's coming out to try and fucking beat me up or what like so i just have to take it as like fuck this i'm pissed i'm throwing do exactly what brett did like i'm throwing cameras i'm spitting in vince's face i'm yelling at the crowd telling him i'm going to wcw i'm gonna go backstage i'm gonna punch vince in his fucking face and i'm gonna get my <laughs> shit and get the fuck out of here <laughs> like that's what and, it was. and that's and that's what sucks so much and that's that's why i was emphasizing like the positive stuff as i mentioned being in my description the backbone of this documentary you know his prime and rise and everything because then it just got so heartbreaking and my wife my wife is kind of breaking that down because of course you didn't know or even remember whatever the details of the fact that Vince turned on him Montreal Screwjob happens he gets pushed out he goes to WCW which he didn't even want to do they fuck everything up with him there it's like all goofy uh, of course the infamous kick from Bill Goldberg gives him a concussion uh, then his brother his brother dies while he's in freaking WCW then in 2002 he suffers a stroke and falls off his mountain bike like all in succession and like yeah. even my wife's like geez oh man I'm like yeah I remember being a Brett fan just like being heartbroken for him like man this dude just well, had dude, just a mountain of bullshit happen to him in a two gets, year span it still gets worse because it's like Davey dies and then you know yeah exactly Pillman, Pillman even died years ago, of course, and then you know, Neidhart died. He's the last dude. The last few years, Neidhart died. Yeah, he's the yeah, last one. Crazy. Like, but that was cool too. They all they end this documentary showing some stuff that that we haven't seen before with his current wife. That's a lot uh, younger than him, a, a pretty African American lady, and his family. Like you know, because we we as wrestling fans, of course, remember seeing his son Blade in the crowd just remembering oh, yeah. the name blade because it's so unique and they show blade as like uh i mean he's got to be what hey close to 30 yeah. at this point which is yep. crazy dude i always thought i totally forgot about this right and it reminded me of it so like i remember back in the day they would have like you know stories and shit in the wwf magazine on brett and like his family and shit like that so this is where i would have known this so they're showing his family members and shit and then they show his one daughter and I'm like, that's right. This dude and his fucking wife named his daughter Beans. Yeah. Her name is Beans. Bean Hearts. It's like, dude, like, it, which was cute when you're a kid. But like when you're a fucking 32 year old woman, it's probably fucking weird to be like, my name is Beans. Just call me B. Ugh. But yeah. Anyway, they, they also had uh, uh, Julie Hart, Brett's uh, first wife. Um, yeah, did she look different? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's not bad. She just looked a lot different from wrestling with shadows. Well, that was fuck. You know, twenty four. Oh, I know. Years yeah, ago, I get it. You know, Trust me. Just, yeah, I get it. But it's you know, this was really, really good. Like I said, I was really surprised that it was as good as it was. And like I said, without a doubt, this one's my favorite one of the season. Yeah, it's up there. I'd have to rewatch all of them uh, myself, but I mean, it's it's definitely up there. I love this one. Um, I I love it. Made me love Brett even more, honestly. Oh, dude, you know, because again, a side note, yeah, I, I, not to interrupt you, I just wanted to bring this up no, real no. quick. Yeah, for sure. It was really crazy in this a couple times with Brett talking about Owen and Brett talking about his family. 
getting really emotional on the show, which is rare for Brett. You don't see that very yeah. often from him. So like that was also telling. And I thought that was pretty cool. I, I enjoyed that just to be able to see that side of Bret Hart after all these years, I thought was pretty neat. I was going to say, I mean, that's the best way I could surmise it. I loved Bret Hart going into this and I love him even more after it. <laughs> that's what I can say. Good call. So that is the A&E biography on Brett the Hitman Hart. And we are going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to be at the drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob talking sledgehammer from 1983 and things from 1989. So hang on, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Hey, everyone. It's the J from the What's Real podcast here today to talk about ChurchillPictures.com. Churchill Pictures was founded by two childhood friends that grew up in Churchill Borough, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Jared Bajoris and Damiano Fusca began collaborating on their first feature film in 2007, Deference, winner of the Silver Ace Award at the Las Vegas Film Festival in 2012. Go to churchillpictures.com to check out our original trailers, documentaries, comedy sketches, the entire history of the infamous Backyard Wrestling League, UCW, exclusive independent wrestling content, and exclusive videos showcasing our next huge film project entitled The Marks. This includes an appearance from our character, the feature presentation, Johnny Starr, on the streaming talk show, Alone Together Pittsburgh. We are Churchill Pictures. Established from the bond of two childhood friends, we envision creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Churchill Pictures. Picture the possibilities. Go to churchillpictures.com today. And we're back, and it is time to get down to the last drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs, this time for a shot-on-video double feature for the very first time here on the last drive-in. First up is from 1983. It is from director David A. Pryor. Uh, It's considered by most to be the first shot-on-video movie, too. There was another movie made in 82 called Boarding House that was shot on video, but it was blown up to 35 when they put it in theaters, so a lot of people don't count it, even though it's probably a better movie than this. Um, But this is the one that is highly regarded as the first, David A. Pryor's Sledgehammer. Uh, A young boy murders his mother and her lover with a hammer. Ten years later, a wave of teenage murders plagues the same area. Um... I think this movie is probably more important due to what it is as opposed to the movie itself. Um, This to me is like a snapshot in time of what people were doing with consumer electronics in 1983. uh, Whenever video cameras and stuff like that first became uh, affordable for an average person. Um, And people weren't just filming weddings with these. This was they were making stuff like Sledgehammer. And, and to that, off the outset of this double feature here at the drive-in, hey, you know, the J has to say and give a disclaimer to the audience that due to myself being involved in independent filmmaking and being somewhat of a part of this, you know, later, they, these guys were in the 80s, I was in the 90s, so I was like a decade after, but I'm going to have a bunch of side tangents and different personal things because this is just the the, pers- the perfect spot with these shot on video films to kind of talk about our starting out and learning. And it was that exact same kind of situation that they were in where it was like wanting to make a film as a kid, as soon as we were able 
to get our hands like me in particular was our friend down the street Guillermo got his hands on his family's camcorder as soon as we got our hands on a camcorder we started fucking around with it yeah it's dude this is because Joe Bob mentions it uh, and it's pretty clear but these guys didn't go to film school um, this was their film school that's that's um, how it was just for getting us getting a camera yep watching movies and trying to figure out what you were doing that's I mean, I think that's how most of us did a lot of stuff like that. When we were it kids correlates with our backyard wrestling to teach you. Yep. The backyard wrestling yep. we were just talking about last week with, you know, got brought up with Foley stuff. We referenced it a lot on the show because it was a big part of our childhood. And as we always say, you and I like started it, but it was that same thing. It was like, we watch pro wrestling. We want to do it. So when we're like, 12 or 13, you know, we kind of started putting together things in my dad's house and we didn't even record it. It was kind of teenagers with their imagination. And then eventually we get too big and we're destroying the house. We get kicked out. We kind of pioneered backyard wrestling again, like we were alluded to last week and having Guillermo's camcorder. We're like, dude, we got to tape this shit. And that's kind of how all this similar stuff starts. Yeah. It's just, it opens up a new window. Like it, 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 like for example, jackass became a big thing right now if you were just doing that stuff not filming it like it's like what the fuck are you doing but like filming it kind of adds another dimension to it that you probably didn't think about before that somebody else would find this stuff hilarious or something um and it's the same kind of stuff with this it's like well i could try that or i could do that or how do they do that and you really don't know like you know this as well as anybody the jay You learn so much just by getting the camera in your hand. Hands on. It's like driving. Like you thought you probably thought you understood how to drive a car until you actually learned how to drive a car. And then there was things about it that were just different than what you thought. Same things with a camera, same things with a bike, same things with anything. But then you learn certain things. You learn certain tricks. You learn certain, you know, things that are, are just 101 as far as filmmaking goes even though you don't make a movie that's necessarily good it doesn't matter it's still you know you're you're going through the process what what's like the first advice anybody typically get, gives and i i do myself if a younger person asks uh, asks excuse me about you know how you get into filmmaking and stuff the first thing you do is is exactly what you're saying i i call it nike yoda just do it do or do not, there is no try. You just got to do it. And then, like you said, you evolve because that's how you learn. You get hands-on. You at least learn how to use the equipment. Like, put it this way. If you're sitting a little kid down to teach him how to play basketball, you're not going to be like, this is a basketball. This is how you dunk a basketball. That's so far down the line for the kid. You have to show him how to dribble. You have to show him how to shoot free throws. You got to show him how to shoot, period. Like, you have to learn basic fundamentals of things. That's where you get at. And that's why a movie like Sledgehammer is unpolished. A lot of it makes no sense. Um, Some of the shots are terrible. Some of them are really cool. Like, you can tell even when you watch the movie what was shot last compared to first because they're learning as they go along. Certain things look better than others. That was like some of our projects. That's why. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So you're kind of watching and and dude, this is really, this has to be really bizarre um, because this didn't even happen for like John Carpenter or Stanley Kubrick and stuff. Imagine your experimental student film gets distributed 
because that's what Sledgehammer is. Yep, that, there was a that time didn't happen with Ring Heat. Early 80s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, but, but here's the thing. When did you make Ring Heat? In the 90s. Yeah, a different time. If you would have made that in 1982 and you had the, the wherewithal to try and get it distributed, you probably could have. Because at the time, there were no Hollywood films in the video store. There was a time where Hollywood looked at the video store as a negative, like we don't want people to have access to these copies of movies because then they won't pay to see them anymore. They won't go to theaters. They didn't understand how that was going to carry out. So you had this weird glut of people really wanting stuff to watch at home. And outside of like pornography, there wasn't a whole lot. So it opens up this whole world of shot on video stuff like Sledgehammer. And that's where exactly where it fit in. And that's why it also has the the kind of reputation that it does because Joe Bob mentioned this too on one of his break-ins where there were people that specifically went to the video store to rent stuff like this. Things they're like, what is this? Or, you know, like I've never heard of this before. Like just trying to get a grasp of something different that was very much unlike anything they'd ever seen before. As usual with those days too, hey, uh, the the cover art is interesting. It's like the sledgehammer going through this mask and like, you know, like this bloody kind of weirdly written thing. And it's not professional, but it's interesting. It would catch your eyes, you know, especially as a younger person. Like, oh, this looks kind yeah, of cool. It, like, what is this? It, and it certainly fits that mold of the 1980s box cover art that is there to, like, stick out and, like, yell at you. Um, regardless of what the, the content of the movie was. That's just how it was back then. Um, now, again... Sledgehammer is not a good movie. It's pretty ambitious considering they just filmed it basically in a guy's apartment. Uh, But, you know, there's funny stuff that comes along with that, too. Like there's a scene in the movie where the killer's chasing a woman down a hallway forever. And then she goes around the corner to get away from the killer, bumps into her friends. And then one of her friends goes and looks down the hallway for the killer like they're in a fucking airport hangar and not (laughs) just a hallway of an apartment. But that's part of kind of like the goofy charm that this movie has. Again, it's not good. But the thing is, sometimes you don't have to be good to still bring some form of entertainment to the table. And, And that you nailed it. That's the key word, entertainment. And this was entertaining predominantly you know definitely some goofy like just really tough to watch portions for sure uh but that's what you get for kind of what we were saying with the background of this whole thing is like there's there's the one in particular towards the beginning of course you have the the love interests subplot where the the one main guy uh that's ted Pryor, the uh director's brother that's playing the character is kind of like a bodybuilder dude and has this girlfriend that he proposed to but he's having second thoughts so she's all whiny so they have that subplot and at one point there's just this music going and they're walking in slow motion for what feels like forever like in this oh, yeah. field by this fence and like it's little things like that dude. where like joe bob brings up there there was parts of it that he thought that david Pryor was like kind of learning and like doing these cool filmmaker tricks and like extending the like the wide shot of the the house and like letting it go like long and then of course he's like yeah i got my bubble burst because david prior to an interview said no i was just stretching everything out as much as i could because i needed more time to make the movie longer <laughs> so. yeah i mean you need to be at least at 75 minutes to make a feature so you're talking you know anything i can do to pad the running time which they did Um, There is some interesting sequences here. They do understand some things of basic filmmaking. But like I said, uh, this is pretty rough around the edges. And that's why David A. Pryor was pretty pissed off 
uh, whenever he went to a revival screening of it in 2010 and somebody asked him what he thought of the movie and he's like, it pissed me off. And they were like, why? And he's like, because I made over 30 movies since and I'm watching this and seeing all my mistakes just in all the, the decisions that I shouldn't have made. Uh, it's just overall just a frustrating experience. So uh, it's kind of interesting just in that perspective alone, just to, you know, not too many people have like their student film out there uh, where it's, you know, that's been distributed and owned by companies for years. Uh, and there's still an interest on it because, you know, it's being streamed on Shutter right now as part of the show. So, uh, you know, that's pretty impressive, let alone like, you know, imagine making this little camcorder movie in 1983 and it's 2021 and people are still talking about it and even showing it on something like The Last Drive. And it's pretty impressive. That that should be inspiring for up and coming independent filmmakers or anybody listening to us right now or watching The Last Drive in on Shutter in this particular week, an episode that they might be thinking about possibly trying to make a movie or being involved. Uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that as a kid, you know, you might watch Steven Spielberg films or all these hundred million dollar superhero movies and just be like, you know, defeated. Like, there's no way I could do anything like this. These are the type of movies that are an inspiration that say, yeah, you can, you know, because they pulled it off. And it's one of those things. It's like, if, if I could do it, you could do it. You know, that's what I say to people, too, with our films. You know, like I it's just again, it just my per- personal perspective, it correlates with with my myself in, in the wrestling industry as well as my stuff in, in entertainment and film and like being in plays and everything is just like if, if you want to do something, you just got to do anything you can to do it. You know, you can't be one of those people and God bless you out there if you you struggle with mental issues or whatever. But to, to sit there and talk about doing something was never my personality. I'm going to do it, you know, and even if it's on, like, that's the point with talking about Sledgehammer on a level like this, at least you're doing it. Everybody that's going to make fun of this movie. Okay. Well, let me see your movie. You know, we always exactly. said that too. Hey, Ed, you know, yeah, you, they made, they you made a really, movie. You really can't be concerned at all about what anyone thinks of it. Like people might think that the fact that you're making a movie is the dumbest thing they've ever heard. Or they'll be like, you're too stupid, too slow, too lazy, too whatever to make a movie. Just go fucking make it. Even if it sucks, make it. Who cares? You got to learn somewhere. And, you know, that's definitely the inspiration that movies like, you know, Sledgehammer should should be, you know, a part of. So uh, the J hit us with a tagline for this bad boy. Flesh tears, bone shatter. The nightmare has begun. Sledgehammer. All right. And as you know, we do a five star rating scale here on the show. And for this one, I'm going to give it two stars. Right with you. Hate you. No one and one and a half. Is, it, you know, this is one of those things I'd give it a one or one and a half if it was made in the 90s. But like you said, this is like a pioneering kind of movie with it being one of, you know, the first one of what is the first two, like you said, of straight you know shot on video films like that's some pioneering. It's an inspiration to me because I, I get the, the other side of it that your typical a casual film goer or somebody that not even that big in the movies might not understand about this where they can't even watch something like this. I, again, I find inspiration in it. Kudos to David Pryor and, and the whole team and they get a two-star review from the J here on what's real. Next up in the second part of the double feature is from 1989, just a few years after Sledgehammer. And this one is Canadian made directed by Andrew Jordan. This is things. This one's a an doozy. infinite, An impotent husband with a fanatical desire to father children forces his wife to undergo a dangerous experiment. The result in the birth of a multitude of monstrous things. Um, 
this movie and this I, I mention on here uh, quite frequently, uh, the app uh, <laughs> Letterboxed. Um, and whenever I watch the stuff uh, on there, I tend to do a little bit of a review. And I wrote for this one, watch this part of the last drive in with Joe Bob. This one is quite memorable and apt nonsense. And it was liked by none other than star of the film himself, Barry J. Gillis. So you got to love that. Yeah, there's a kind um, of positive slant in that review. So he's like, oh, take it. Like, yeah, it's dude. This movie is super weird uh, for a lot of different reasons. So they got uh, a Amber Lynn, uh, who at the time was one of the premier porn stars in the adult film industry to be in their movie, uh, most likely to get naked. She refused uh, for her $2,500 payday. And they end up using her as a newscaster that just reads cue cards that are poorly paced, placed off camera. Um, most of this is shot in a guy's house. Um, it is sort of like one part inept student film, other part, you know, like acid fever dream kind of deal. <laughs> yeah. um, it's not completely devoid of, of anything decent. Uh, there is some stuff in this that I think is on point and pretty cool. Most of it, though, is just poorly made. They didn't know what they were doing at all. Um, they had no money. The special effects are basically non-existent. Um, there's no actors in the film. Everybody in the film is pretty terrible. Um, and this is like, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit off the air, too, the Jay. This is basically like a movie that, like, some you know, you, you will add a little bit into this one because I think that... Uh, this one reminds you of something that's in your wheelhouse. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta throw this perfect placement here. Hey, you know, on what's real to throw you uh, three of my biggest bullet points in my notes that I take for the show with things, and that is this movie. Like probably about a quarter of the way through, I think I even texted you possibly. Like uh, it just reminds me of the first one we ever did when we were teenagers, and I was talking about it in the prior segment about we getting our hands on a camcorder in the '90s with uh, Guillermo. McMillan, his directorial debut when we were teenagers, probably like the 15-year-old range of, of he and I, and then his younger brother and a bunch of our neighborhood friends doing this same thing. And the thing with doing the shot on video is the whole th we, we dubbed the whole thing later with our own music because Guillermo could play guitar with no script and just completely improved the dubbing, re-watching what we shot with barely any script. So Ring Heat could give things a run for its money, for sure. I mean, Ring Heat, quite honestly, might even be worse than things. And that's saying a whole lot, hate you because it's one of those things, too. Talking about Sledgehammer, as Joe Bob brings up, is, you know, or Darcy, I think, said, Sledgehammer is actually the better one of the two, which says a lot here with things. Uh, but yeah, it just really reminded me of doing Ring Heat and them doing a, sim a similar thing. But just like with us, hey, Ed, and I know you know this, with things, the heart is still there. They're still trying. Oh, yeah. They're still having yeah. fun. They're making a Dude, movie with their friends at the end of the day. For no money, this movie is ambitious as fuck. They, want, they made a monster movie, basically. Um, they, these guys are nobodies, and I don't mean that to be disparaging. I'm like, they're just people making a movie. They still got one of the biggest adult film actresses in the world to be in their movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the big difference between her, thing. And they still paid her two twenty five hundred bucks in nineteen eighty nine. So somebody here had their shit together to get the money together. <laughs> yeah, because we we spent absolutely zero on ring heat, and we loopholed 
an appearance by Shannon Tweed, as you know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's uh, the secrets of filmmaking. However, <laughs> I can't divulge everything. But like, dude, the, the thing is, this movie is most well known because it's a movie that like no one should have ever seen. And it's managed to get way it's cool that it exists. Should have. Yeah, dude, it's that's how I look at it. on Shutter. Like, yeah. you know, no offense to you, but like, is Ring Heat streaming on anything right now? Any major Ring, Ring Heat? Ring Heat is streaming on ChurchillPictures.com and YouTube. So at least it's yeah. up there. But yeah, it's not on Amazon Prime or Netflix like our other movies. So uh, you there know, you go. give things a lot of credit. And, and that that kind of goes in with a couple other the bullet points just to throw at you. Hey, you know, with uh, the the beginning of the film, they just they wanted to have nudity. Amber Lynn's not doing nudity. So they ended up just having to try to find somebody that would be naked in the movie of female, of course. And so of course they go on the streets in Canada and look for a prostitute that would be nude in their movie. They find one that agrees, but she doesn't want her face to be seen. So she wears a devil's mask and does full frontal in like the opening scene, which there's no relevancy to the devil mask. It's just that that's the mask that was around because she wanted to wear a mask. <laughs> you know, it doesn't as most of the stuff with this movie has nothing to do with any plot points. And that correlates with one more side story here. Hey, you know, cause this is the place to tell it. That is a similar personal experience to these guys going to try to find a prostitute for their movie Our our first feature film um, uh, besides ring heat after ring heat was called deference. Uh, that one is on Amazon Prime, so shout out there and cheap plug. But we needed a uh, the same kind of thing. We needed a, a nude woman for a, a sex scene, and we didn't know how to go about it really. So we were kind of looking into the stripper realm was our idea. And where we were shooting in the strip district of Pittsburgh, near downtown Pittsburgh, across the street from where we were shooting was this restaurant bar that we would hang out. Ironically, probably sent from the movie gods, I would be my only assumption here. Hey, yo, we go over to the bar and it just so happens we're talking about it. And there's a former play, uh, a former penthouse playmate at the bar restaurant. We end up talking to her about it. She agrees to be in it and she is in deference. So how funny is that? Ten, ten, you know, almost 20 years from when they shot things, a very similar story here in Pittsburgh. It's amazing what can happen when you're doing these creative endeavors and shooting independent film, man. It's definitely a journey and an adventure. And that's why as goofy and bad as things is, I still give them a whole hell of a lot of credit. And uh, the last thing to mention here with my rant, hey, you know, between before throwing it back at your ale, is the fact that the special guest, because of the Canadian connection, was our man, AEW's own Chris Jericho, uh, at the last drive-in with Joe Bob and Darcy for things. And uh, he really went heel on this one. It was hilarious. Yeah, he hates this movie. Uh, I don't know too many people that like it. Um, I think that it's interesting, the fact that it exists, but I wouldn't exactly classify it as a good movie in any capacity. Uh, just kind of amazing that it exists. And, you know, I thought Joe Bob made a good point. And it's kind of something that I said to you when we were talking about this the other day off the air. Um, a lot of people don't really understand that I don't give a shit about superhero movies, but I'll watch stuff like things. Joe Bob kind of summed that up. And it's because the movies have a soul. They're not $100 million fucking marketing pieces just to sell toys and shit to, to weirdos. It's they're just movies made because someone wanted to fake fucking make a movie. And they did. Um, it's the art of it. Yeah, it's the it's like, OK, I'm going to see what these dudes were able to pull off for a thousand dollars or whatever they're making the movie for. 
Um, so that that interests me where the other stuff just doesn't, because when I go into these movies, they're made for no money. If they're not good, I get it. They, there's no major actors in them. They had no money behind it. The directors never made anything before. But I've seen movies made for $100 million that make me want to rip my hair out because you have everything at your your fingertips to make this a good movie and you still couldn't do it. So that's the know, difference. Exactly. Yeah, that's the thing. So uh, overall this week, I thought it was a pretty cool thing that they did. So I enjoyed that. So the J you got a tagline for things. Sure do. Hey, yeah, it's what's real. It's very rare that we don't things warning horror and brutal violence in full color. Okay. I actually was able to find another one uh, conceived by us. a lunatic hatched within a human womb. So that's <laughs> another one. Uh, and as we do here on the show with the five star rating scale, the J would he give things? I'm going to bump them to one and a half because I thought Sledgehammer was better. And typically uh, this is another one. I would just say, you know, one star or a dud, but out of all due respect, knowing the inside of how hard it is to make a feature film personally, I'll give them a one and a half here on what's real. Hey, yo. Okay. You are nicer than me. Uh, this one for me gets one star. Uh, it's a pretty terrible movie. I still appreciate it for what it is. But it's not good in any capacity. There's really not much good about it whatsoever. Um, so that being that, the, the best thing about it is the fact that they got it distributed. So uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say the Bush, the Canadian prostitutes Bush. Eh, that's second place, I'd say. Probably. <laughs> um, but that is another week here at the last drive in with Joe Bob Briggs. It is time to take another quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to be talking some dark side of the ring this time about grizzly smith jake roberts and their family so stay tuned guys we'll be back right after this on the what's real podcast check out darksidedemonclothing.com two guys with troubled past disturbed minds fighting inner demons who are succeeding expectations of what people thought they could overcome now they want to reveal it to the world and help others conquer theirs for t-shirts hats and more check out darksidedemonclothing.com and we're back and it is time to head over to the dark side of the ring this week about grizzly smith uh specifically the family of jake the snake roberts who grizzly smith was his father so uh, Grizzly Smith was a wrestler uh, in the late 50s throughout the 60s and 70s. He's also the father of Jake the Snake Roberts, Sam Houston, and Rockin' Robin. Um, now, this was something that for a really long time outside of the wrestling industry, people didn't know at all. Um, I probably didn't find out that Jake Roberts and Sam Houston were brothers until like the 90s, actually. Um, and it was basically this is the gist of the story here. Um Grizzly Smith was a pretty nasty human being in general. Uh, he was known for being a pedophile. Um, he abused uh, multiple kids. And uh, he had a daughter who was kidnapped when she was 15 years old and they never found her again. And a lot of people have kind of thought that he had something to do with it. Um, since then, you know, Sam Houston had come and gone in the world of professional wrestling, but usually whenever his name gets brought up, it's because of a DUI. Um, he's had a lot of them, so much so that 
he almost went to prison for a full decade uh, because of DUIs. Um, Rockin' Robin is kind of fallen uh, out of the spotlight. Uh, the only things that I remember seeing were there some shoot interviews and some things where she talked about the things that her father did. And Jake the Snake, of course, has been in the public eye consistently and usually for terrible things. Um, he's been known to be a drug abuser. He's had a lot of issues with drugs and alcohol throughout the years. It's pretty well documented. And thankfully, he is clean now. Um, this is kind of a cathartic episode, I'm assuming, for Jake and his siblings. Um, because it gets into a lot of the horrible stuff that was done. Um, I don't think it's anything that we need to get into extreme detail here on other than the fact that the dad was just a really shitty human being and it fucked up a lot of their lives. And it probably led to all three of them getting into professional wrestling at some point. And regardless of their levels of success, uh, they were kind of brought about, brought back down to earth due to their family situation in one shape or form. Um, Jake probably did the best in the wrestling business out of the, everybody in the family. Um, but you know, it's not like he has uh, much to show for it these days compared to the money that he was able to earn through the years that he clearly just burned through. So this is one of the most depressing and sad episodes of dark side of the ring to date because of that. Yeah, well, well put together as always by the dark side crew for sure. And, uh, you know, kudos for them. Like you said, hopefully it is like, there's some semblance of therapy here for the family to just talk about it and get their story out there as rough as I obviously am sure that was because it was rough to watch. And we knew that previewing it last week when we brought it up that, that this was going to be the episode we covered this week, that it was going to be painful and tough. And that's where dark side of the ring can go. You know, this would be up there with the CB episodes and uh, probably the Owen Hart episode as far as being, you know, tough to watch just depressing wise and, and kind of reliving some of this stuff. Uh, because yeah, like, like you said, no, no details, but their accounts of, of their abuse and childhood trauma were just awful. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things, man, there's reasons for everything. And, you know, people out there that, that put down uh, substance abusers and addicts and things like that, uh, you know, again, not to diatribe into personal things, but when, when you're there and you kind of understand it more, you see that there's a reason for most things in life, you know, and Sam Houston getting multiple DUIs and falling into drinking was probably, you know, my assumption would obviously be because he was using that as a numbing agent and that yeah. he needed to, to escape. And, and, you know, that's not the way to do it. But when, when you're fucked up from childhood, man, it's, it's tough to recover from. Like, fortunately it's not something I had experience with, but watching this, them relive how Grizzly, Grizzly Smith treated them. What a piece of shit he was. Yeah, he just wasn't. He was literally the opposite of a good human being. Um, it, just in every capacity. Uh, it's Dude, there was a time period in professional wrestling where his behavior wasn't just tolerated, it was accepted. And that was bullshit. It should have never been accepted. And it's shame on a lot of the fucking people that let stuff like that go on underneath their noses. Or, you know, like they even said, like, that people would make a joke about, like, Grizzly Smith, like, oh, what's he, you know, with the young girl or so. Like, it was a joke in the business. And it's a shame that somebody didn't set his ass straight at one point because I don't care how big he is or tough he is. He wasn't the biggest or toughest guy in the business. 
somebody could have at least been like, we're not going to tolerate that fucking shit around here. And they didn't. Let alone if he's, you know, possibly a murderer of his own daughter on top of yeah, everything else. It, it, there, it's dude. It was such a carny uh, closed off business that it was in people's best interest to say, shut the fuck up and stay out of it back then. And it's just how the business was. I'm not defending it. I'm just stating how it was. So um, it's unfortunate. And it just is the way that it is that it ended up being this way. It was literally like at the right place at the right time for such a horrible thing. Um, And this one's very difficult to kind of review, too, because, like, I can't really recall a lot of this stuff to you. You need to see them talk about it for it. Yeah, you kind of almost just naturally block it out. It's yeah, just well, so dark. Well, I mean, like, I'm not going to explain a situation like that's for them to explain. So the best way yeah, I right. can say it is like, if you're interested in Jake the Snake and his family and stuff like that, it's worth a watch. It's it's a rough watch, but and there's a reason for it. I totally understand the reason why this exists, and I applaud them for making the episode because I thought for what it was, it was really good. Yeah, one of the things, of course, I remember the first time that I even knew who Grizzly Smith was, was, of course, from Beyond the Mat. Yeah. And Jake Jake the Snake with uh, producer Barry Blostein actually visits him as part of the documentary. And they have this, like, real awkward scenario, like, you know, in the backyard doing yard work kind of thing. And it's just, uh, you know, I remember just being creeped out by it him is. then. You know? Yeah. It's a weird, he doesn't come across as genuine at all. Uh, it's very strange. Um, but that's, I don't know. I guess that's one of the closest glimpses we've ever gotten into Jake and his family. So it doesn't surprise me that it's awkward, especially with what we know now. Um, well, yeah, because speaking of that too, is uh, they had his fourth kid, Richard Smith, because he yep. wasn't in the wrestling business. So I didn't, you know, I'd never seen him before, but it was unique as part of this documentary to get his perspective as as the only one of the siblings not involved with wrestling and like kind of how he saw everything from his eyes and even him being the person that had to take care of everything when his father died and he seems to have some affinity for his father even though he's a terrible person and he kind of even says that like you know like he seems to feel bad for it but it was his dad so you know not everybody had those same experiences a lot of people are just you know it's mentally damaging in a lot of ways. And it kind of shows you like the, the wreckage that somebody that lived like Grizzly Smith leaves, even when he's no longer alive. Um, that's that's the, the one of the saddest. So important. Yeah. One of the saddest things that comes from all of that is that one person, and we've said that before, you know, one hassle ruins everything, but he just single-handedly destroyed this family to the point that all the siblings within this admitted to being estranged from one another, but eventually each of them in this, including Richard, uh, allows for the possibility of a reconciliation between them at some point. So that would be good to see, too. Again, if 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 anything, reliving this and watching this has a positive outset to it, kind of kind of like the CB episode, you know, yeah. I mean, I'll just say it, the Benoit episode, of course, where at least Jericho got Nancy's sister back with Daniel, his son and things like that. I mean, if any semblance of a positive thing can come from such a dark story, then I think it's worth, you know, retelling and, and getting some sort of therapeutic side out of it, you know? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree there. I mean, it, you know, not to keep milling on and on about the same thing, but like overall uh, I thought it was a good episode and a really important episode. 
And I completely understand why they did it. So I definitely recommend that you guys, more so than even the other ones, if you're interested in this remotely, watch it. It's it's pretty important to see them kind of tell the stories themselves. It's it's better that we wouldn't ever be able to do that kind of justice here on a podcast. So uh, yeah, definitely a tough review. Definitely, but it was a great episode. Uh, they're really trying to like again. They're digging through the BS. You know what I mean. You're getting what feels like the, the the majority of the story here or what you need to know as far as the story goes. And this one was definitely not an exception to that rule. So great job again by the dark side crew. Uh, and it looks like next week is the final one of the season. And it's going to be a long awaited one on none other than Tom Billington, AKA the dynamite kid. And he was one of our favorites and another cool thing. Hey, uh, because you read his book, really enjoyed it. And I actually borrowed it right from you. So we both read that uh, from your book collection there. And uh, so we'll, we'll see what they uh, have to say, you know, from his account. Cause I, I still remember that pretty vividly, even though that was a, a while ago, I read that, but that was a really good book. Yeah. It's a, a very book. interesting guy. There's definitely some, some bullshit in there too. Uh, like most wrestling books, but yeah, that's what I mean. It'll be cool to see the, you know, I like, you know, when you get different, perspectives on things you know you learn more absolutely so we are going to take our final break and when we come back we're going to wrap up the show and talk some goofs so stay tuned guys we'll be back right after this on the what's real podcast check out iwc international wrestling cartel reloaded 7.0 saturday june 12th from the court time sports center in elizabeth pa the infamous reset button is back on saturday june 12th for the most unpredictable night in all of professional wrestling when iwc presents reloaded 7.0 the action kicks off at 7 p.m at the home base at the court time sports center in elizabeth pennsylvania this will be the first live events in 15 months where we'll be able to have a full crowd at the Court Time Sports Center. We will be following all COVID state regulations. Want to join in person? Buy your ticket now at iwcwrestling.com. Reloaded 7.0, Saturday, June 12th, 2021 at the Court Time Sports Center. IWC, International Wrestling Cartel, for the best pro wrestling in Pittsburgh. Hey everybody, this is Herman James. For the What's Real podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs or Goofs. And we're back, and that's right, the J. It's that time. So, what do we got this week on the Goof front? Always some goofs here at the What's Real podcast, episode seventy-four, no exception. Hey, yeah, and I put this first goof on here because it's another one of those few things where we kind of have conflicting opinions. Uh, not big on a lot of his movies and different things, but I'm a much bigger fan than you are. And that's why you basically personally requested this particular thing with this particular goof. So here we go. Goofs or goofs with Rob Zombie officially confirming his next movie is a reboot of the monsters. Thoughts hate you with, with, with Sherry moon zombie playing all the female characters and maybe grandpa. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Dude, it's like, hey, if you've ever wanted to hear Herman Munster call somebody a stupid fucking cocksucker, it's coming in this. Let me tell you. As Zombie wrote Dude. on Instagram, attention boils and ghouls. The rumors are true. My next film project will be the one I've been chasing for 20 years, The Munsters. Stay tuned for your exciting details. Uh, I don't care about The Munsters to begin with. 
Like, it's fine. You know, I'm not the biggest fan. But, like, I don't understand how this dude keeps getting fucking work. <laughs> I really don't. Like, uh, fucking zombie, dude. Yeah, the only, the only good uh, thing I saw about it was uh, Elvira Cassandra Peterson is cast in a role. So that's cool. And yeah, she's cast in a role that's probably going to be cut out of the movie, like most of the people that star in his movies. <laughs> yeah. Like somebody, a friend of mine's like, I, be, I bet you Danny Trejo's in there. And I'm like, yeah, he's going to get cut out. You'll have to watch him on the extras on the DVD. Yeah, just unbelievable. Moving on God, with... He's the... Uh, <laughs> your man, hey, you. Moving on with Ugh. Goose or Goose 74, uh, right here in Pittsburgh. Uh, this happened uh, not too long ago. Uh, I think like you know a few days ago, a uh, man was stabbed with a sword in an alleged landlord-tenant dispute on the north side. Hey, yo. Hey, man, you can't fuck around with the Vikings in the city. They don't play. They have to carry swords, and it's like the 1400s to them, apparently. Well, it could have been one of the samurai from the upper North Shore. If it was, you'd have never heard about it. <laughs> A man was stabbed twice with a sword early Friday morning and what police said appears to be a landlord-tenant dispute on Pittsburgh's north side. They were called to the block. Police said they found the victim with two stab wounds from a quote-unquote type of sword. He was taken to a hospital in stable condition. Were they flesh wounds? <laughs> yeah, they must have been. <laughs> That's what, like, by type of sword, are you saying, like, like we were saying, like alluding to, like, samurai or... Just like a yeah, straight what, what up a medieval re- sword, what a shitty news report. That <laughs> Fencing was. I sword. I need to know what the type. Was there a flesh wound? Did anybody survive? What, yeah, I mean, there's there there's a, a there's a story there, man. Like you know, alleged landlord tenant dispute with a sword. Like there's a like, story. There. As the police as the police pulled in, they realized a gaggle of ninjas were running away, but they did not see them as they slipped into the darkness of night. <laughs> yeah. Moving on with Goose or Goose 74, Burger King hey, it trolls Chick-fil-A with an LGBTQ donation thing here where Burger King is making a statement during Pride Month. <laughs> it's trying to get a leg up in the chicken sandwich wars by taking a not-so-subtle dig at rival Chick-fil-A's fraught history with the community. The fast food chain tweeted last week it would donate 40 cents to the human rights campaign forever Chicking chicken sandwich sold in June. Uh, okay, this is where we're at. We got to, like, I don't know, fucking fast food joints. Like, just make edible food. Can you manage that and then worry about other stuff later? Like, I'm glad your trolling game on social media is upping it. But, you know, just make half-decent human food. <laughs> Good luck with that. Hey, you know, like uh, exactly a, a while ago here on the podcast and goose or goose where we had the, the cow fart Burger King video. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's whatever. I don't, what do I know? <laughs> I don't know. Well, we're going out on a hot note. Hey, it, as meet the breakout actress that is the first black woman to be number one on Maxim's hot issue. Our girl. I know you love her too. Tayana Taylor. Oh, Jesus a, Christ. Pulled it off here and uh, her pictures. Yeah, you, you didn't send me the link to that one. I'm sending it now. <laughs> hey, you, know. <laughs> you know, as as they used Jeez. to say, Damon Wayne's and company on In Living Color. God damn, that's a lot of money. 
Hey, rightfully so. Yeah, Shit. I mean, she she is ridiculous. For those that don't know and are interested, just Google her. But Tiana Taylor is the first black woman to be named Maxim's sexiest woman alive. The multi-talented actress Dude. model. Oh, she just hit me up on the gram. Hey, y'all. There you go. Congratulations. All right. Don't tell Tatai. Ed, that's kind of surprising. I didn't even really realize Maxim was still a thing. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I mean, they, they kind of shift to more of like a social media presence kind of thing than, of, of course, the the hard copy sales. But I think they still do put it out. Dude, that, you know, I was talking to somebody about something like this the other day. Is Playboy still a thing? Yeah, it, it, it's like in a really weird state, but it's still a thing. I think uh, Half Sun is, is behind it. Okay, so they're still putting know. out magazines or what? I don't think they, they're putting out magazines. They just, again, it's the same kind of thing as Maxim. They still have the name in the IP. So they kind of stay alive, okay. you know, on, on social media and stuff like that is f- from what I know. And, and the Jays okay. just speculating. So don't quote me on anything. We'll fact check ourselves next week if we remember, which we won't. So yeah, we won't. They're going to go. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, not, it was a slow week in goose or goose, but still, still goose abound. As I say to my brother, hate you between Rob Zombie rebooting the Munsters, a man stabbed in the North Shore of Pittsburgh with a sword, Burger King trolling Chick-fil-A, and Tayon Taylor being the sexiest woman alive. Happy birthday, Kanye. Goofs are gifts so that is it for episode 74 hope you guys enjoyed the show uh, of course if you're listening on itunes please drop by and give us a five-star review helps out the show gets ones and ears on the program and of course you can listen every week on all your favorite podcasting platforms such as apple itunes spotify podbean google podcasts and every week on churchillpictures.com if you have something you'd like to add to the show, you can send it to us in an email at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that is whatsrealpod at gmail.com. But before we get out of here, here's the J revving it up. So the J, take it away, brother. Revving it up as if I had auditioned and got every single fucking role in the reboot of the Munsters. Hey, yo. Uh, yeah, pumped up. It was another great week, man. For for those out there listening, if you have any interest, like we were mentioning in uh, our trip to the drive-in with the straight-to-video movies, uh, go to churchillpictures.com. We have all our videos up there, and amongst those is Ring Heat. So you can watch for yourselves. And for those that did watch Shudder, you can compare Sledgehammer and things and Ring Heat and have fun with that. We'd appreciate it. Churchillpictures.com. Other than that, I am Arnold Schwarzenegger in it this week. Hey, Ed, because next week I'll be back. Have have a fun time doing the show. I'm so delirious right now, as you can tell. So let me just wrap it up. <laughs> Shout out to the wizard behind the boards, our man, Cam. Thanks for what you do, Cam. Love the show. To my brother from another, hey, Ed, thanks for everything you do. It was another blast. Countdown to 75. Can you believe it? Hey, Ed, 75. Ma effing episodes. Unreal. Uh, but as I lead the charge ahead of hate here to those hearing my voice right now, stay safe, stay healthy. You'll hear the J next week. So that is it for episode 74. Don't forget to join us next week for episode 75. 
uh, before we take a little break. We're going to have more news on that next week as well. The J, thanks for sitting down with me, brother, each and every week as we do here on the program. There's nobody else I'd rather do it with. Shout out to the producer, Cam, the wizard behind the boards. Thank you for all the hard work you put into the show and making us sound great each and every week because we all know that nobody beats the whiz. So that is it for episode 74. Thank you all for listening. So stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you right here next week on the What's Real Podcast. What's real? What's real?